It's uh, good to good to have you here, and uh, uh, just a, a couple of reminders. Uh, as uh, Steve mentioned earlier, it really helps us out if you can uh, uh, let us know that you're coming by going to the website because uh, we're almost filling up this morning. Look at this; we got the front pew. I, I thought like we calculated our capacity that included counting the front pew, and nobody sat in it for like six weeks. And I was like, man, we've got we to gotta have that capacity. So I uh, appreciate the Lorenzo stepping up there. Uh, you should too, because now you don't have to sit on the front pew. But uh, I suggest we leave it for latecomers. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, more, we're kinder than that. So uh, just, uh, just want you to know. But yes, if we run out of room and you haven't registered and you come, then uh, you'll either have to come back, watch online, Go downstairs and listen. I'm, I, we've got limited options for that. The other is just to remember that the four seats in between households. So uh, just uh, just make sure that you're four seats between families, and uh, that's that's how we calculate our six six feet of social distancing. There was one other thing I wanted to say, and I've forgotten it, but that's all right. As we continue this uh, sermon series through. The, the book of John, uh, looking at Jesus' seven I am statements. We find, uh, find ourselves in John chapter 8, verse 12. And uh, as Curtis was reading that passage from John, I don't know what it's like for you, but it, it's, John is at times difficult to follow. You almost need to, to have it in front of you, to underline things with a pencil, to, to trace his line of thought, particularly when he starts talking about the one who sent me, the father, uh, you don't know, but I know. And you're like, whoa, hang on, let me try and figure out where these pieces fit together. So we're not going to get into all of that today. Okay, That's important to, to know what's going on. Um, it is interesting that in verse... Um, 25, the crowd say to Jesus, Who are you? They asked. Jesus responds with, Just what, a, what I have been telling you from the beginning. And wouldn't you love to know his tone of voice as he said that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but that's sort of where they're at. And so this series, as we go through the I am's, is kind of answering that question as Jesus is continually trying to reveal himself as God, he, I mean, in this passage, he's talking about himself and the Father being one, pretty much. Um, and so the I am is, is a um, name, a designation of divinity. But there's also all these different descriptions, um, bread, water, uh, light, and we'll look at uh, others as we, in the coming weeks. And so Jesus is revealing himself. So We'll look at a lot of different things and make different applications as we go through this series, but fundamental to it all is Jesus revealing himself to his audience, including us. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on. Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8 verse 12. Now, last week, if you were here, you'll maybe remember that I spent a great deal of time going over the context of the, the passage of Jesus being the bread. 
talking about manna in the wilderness and Moses. And, um, that, there's, that was necessary last week. And we have to do something similar, not quite as deep, but something similar this week. One of the first ways that John describes Jesus in the Gospel of John, so right from the very beginning, is, well, the first way is, in the beginning was the Word. Okay, that's the first description of Jesus, as the Word of God. Okay. Um, but the second one is, is life, and the third one is light. So in, in John 1... We see there in verse uh, 3, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made, was made, that has been made. Verse 4, In him was life. That life was the light of all mankind. Okay, life and light. That's difficult to articulate with a mask on. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. So right there in the very beginning of his book. Now, I think there's something going on, just as in the beginning is the way that Genesis begins. It's also the way that John begins. So it's part of this claim to divinity. It's, it's, it's connecting the new creation that is starting in Jesus with the creation that started in Genesis. And, and so John's got that happening. But the first creative act that we're told, I mean, there was darkness and there was water and there was a mass but the first creative act that we're told of in Genesis is God said let there be light and there was light and so in John we have the in the beginning phrase but then we have life and the life was light and so we see this Jesus' light mirrors Genesis 1 okay so I think that's one of the things that John has going on. But this idea of God as light and his messengers, as representatives, as messengers of light, would have been very common in Greek thought. Uh, the Greeks were quite dualistic in the way they thought about things. Light and darkness, good and bad, um, physical and spiritual. They tended to see things. And John expresses, both here and in his letters, tends to express himself in that way. There's not a lot of gray in John. And so he, he's presenting in a way the Gentile audience would connect with. God is light and everything else is darkness. And then the, the second element of context that we need to know, and really probably the more important one, I believe, is not so much Gentile, it's Jewish. It's the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, often called the, the Feast of Booths, okay? uh, in, the, all, in, in other translations. Today, the Jewish community still celebrates it as Sukkot. Okay? Um, this festival runs for eight days, and it consists of three primary elements. Okay? The first one, since it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, um, requires people to build a tabernacle, to build a tent, a shelter, a booth, you know, however we want to think about it. And usually it's a little framework, and in Jesus' day it would have had just branches put on it. In fact, there were 
they would have had to carry the branches from maybe down along the Jordan River up the hills, up the mountains to get to Jerusalem. Um, and then they would build this shelter oftentimes on top of their house, um, on their roof, since it was a flat roof. And there were different ways of celebrating it, um, but they would spend time in under their shelter. And, uh, and that was to remind them that as they came out of Egypt, they lived in tents. They lived in tabernacles, you know, um, booths. And so that was, was the first and most fundamental aspect of the, the festival. The second significant thing as it runs for these eight days is um, every morning, except on the Sabbaths, uh, there would be a sacrifice made. And after the sacrifice, they would go, the priests or Levites would go down to the Pool of Siloam. And uh, there's a, a story here in this context, in chapter 9 of John, that takes place at the Pool of Siloam. And they'd go to the Pool of Siloam, and they would have this golden container, and they would pick up water, and they would carry it. And they would bring the water all the way back up to the altar at the temple. And then they would get the golden container of um, water. They would also have a, go a golden container of wine. And they would pour them um, into an another container. Uh, and, and then that was eventually um, spilled on the ground and flowed down into a stream out of from the temple. And that was an offering, an offering of water, offering of wine, and uh, said to represent the life and joy those two drinks. But it wasn't just a lonely priest going down and hauling back a bucket like when we do the walk for water. You know, this was uh, everybody watching. Everybody was there in the morning. Everybody is watching what's happening. And uh, it, it was a big procession. It was a big deal to see this water being carried uh, from the, the pool up to the, um, the altar in the temple. And then the third one is the lamp celebration at night. And uh, this, is, um, this is, again, a very elaborate event. And I want to, uh, I'm just going to read a description for you, uh, sort of a compilation of descriptions by different rabbis. I got this from a Jewish encyclopedia. It's different rabbis that were written hundreds of years ago, so fairly close to it. Because, of course, once the temple was destroyed, this didn't happen anymore. So what I'm describing is what took place in Jesus' time uh, at the temple while it, while it built. I think the main thing to, uh, to remember is the idea of joy. Okay? We're going to look, if you're in a growth group, you're going to look at uh, water. Jesus never says, I am the living water. But he does say, throughout the Gospel of John, he talks about law, water and offers living water. And so... The growth groups are taking sort of an excursus to, to look at this idea of living water and, uh, and they'll get some different aspects on it. But um, here's the description. On the night of the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the outer court of the temple was brilliantly illuminated with four golden lamps, each containing a whole lot of oil. 
in which were burning the old girdles and garments of the priests. The old clothing functioned as wicks. These lamps were placed on high pedestals, which were reached by ladders. I read somewhere it's about could be 50 yards high. And special galleries were um, erected in the court for the accommodation of women, while the men below held torches in their hand, sang hymns, and danced. On the 15 steps of the gate of Nicanor stood the Levites, chanting the 15 songs of degrees or psalms of ascent, Psalms 120 to 134. And they chanted these psalms of ascent to the accompaniment of their instruments, of which the most important was the flute, although it was used neither on the Sabbath nor the first day of the feast. The illumination uh, of these big menorahs uh, set up in the, in the temple, the illumination which was like a sea of fire lit up every nook and corner of Jerusalem and was so bright that in any part of the city a woman could pick wheat from chaff. So, so it's saying you could lay this, the wheat out on the blanket and you, there was enough light to be able to distinguish between the good grains and the bad grains on that, on that blanket in the middle of the night, anywhere in the city. Whoever did not see this celebration never saw a real celebration. Then they give examples of what the celebration looked like. Hillel, the elder, encouraged general rejoicing and participated in the celebration with all might, uh, that all might follow his example. While another rabbi juggled with eight torches, throwing them in the air and catching them again, thus showing his joy at the feast. A third rabbi states that the festival was celebrated throughout the night with songs, music, shouting, clapping of hands, jumping and dancing. When it says throughout the night, it means throughout the night. Um, devout Jews wouldn't sleep. The little booths or tabernacles they made were not for sleeping, at least not at night. And uh, they would um, participate in the celebration of light for a week. And uh, you can just imagine that, that scene. I mean, you've got people jugging flaming torches um, at times. You've got songs, music, shouting, clapping, jumping, dancing, going on all throughout the night. So it sounds a bit like a worship service here at Lawson Road, right? Um, and, and they're doing all of this to praise God, to celebrate what God has done in bringing, in, firstly in bringing Israel out of Egypt and protecting them through the time in the wilderness. Secondly, it's in the fall, so it uh, celebrates the harvest that they've just received, and it looks forward um, looking for God to keep acting in that way in the future. And so, um, th this year, the feast of Sukkot will uh, be held actually October 2nd through 9th. Okay, so it's really close to where we are now. So it looks back, but it also looks forward. As Israel... Um, traveled through the wilderness in tents. They weren't the only ones in tents. God was also in a tent. His tabernacle was at the center of the camp. 
Now, above the tabernacle, do you remember what was there? There's a pillar of cloud. And not just like fog. This is like bright cloud that, that uh, displays the presence of God. And that's during the day. At night, it's a pillar of fire. So in both those instances, there's this shining, this light that is associated with God's presence. When the nation, when the camp moved, or, or when God was ready for the camp to move, that pillar would move out to the front of the camp and everybody would pack up and they would follow it to wherever they were supposed to go next. And so just as God's shining in the Exodus brought salvation to the ancient Israelites, the Jews prayed and sought God's shining, God's presence in their own time. Zechariah chapter 14 verses 6 to 9 describes a future day of the Lord. I want you to notice the two elements that it mentions here. On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, no, sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea, half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. This vision of what the day of the Lord looks like contains what? Light and water. Feast of Tabernacles, light and water. The light, this is where I think where this idea of not sleeping comes from. It's the, and, and the lights associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, when evening comes, there will be light. And so what they're doing is they are saying, this is the future that God has promised. And we will live that out now. We will live it out not just in memory of what was, with our tabernacles, but we will live it out in what God promises will be. And I think we're called to do much the same thing. That as God paints a picture throughout Scripture of what His desire is for the world, that His people are called to live that out, not once a year for a week, but in, in our daily lives that we live out God's vision for the world. Uh, that we don't wait for the future to come, but that we live the future now. And so when the Jews light these great lamps that, that flood the city with light, they're looking for the coming of the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's kingdom, and they joyfully anticipate the coming salvation with trumpets, music, dancing, and fire juggling. Now, we're not exactly told when Jesus made his statement about being the light of the world. But if you were to go back to chapter 7, okay, in chapter 7, uh, right at the beginning, as we're told um, in verse 2, when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, and then a whole lot of stuff happens, verse 14, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. So he would have been teaching in the daytime after the water ceremony and having their discussions. And then where we pick up in verse 12, 
It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people. So this would have carried on from his conversation in chapter 7 when he spoke to them again. It's in the same context of the festival. And so he's already had a conversation in chapter 7 about the water. And now in chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. I think it makes a big difference for us when we hear that statement in the midst of this festival. It's a powerful statement. I mean, we could sit around and say, what does it mean for Jesus to be the light of the world? And we could discuss that. And maybe I'll get to some ideas a little later about that. Um, Just as an abstract thought, why would Jesus want to be light? But when you think of what's going on in that festival, of the joy, of the celebration, of the reminder of God's faithfulness and salvation in the past, of the anticipation of his coming kingdom, of the, the gathering of everybody coming together. This was one of the three pilgrimage feasts where uh, families, men would come from all over Israel, would come to Jerusalem for this, this feast. Um, and so in that context, when Jesus says, well, those fires up there are nice. And, and I wonder if he said it at night as they were shining, or if he said it, it we're told it was on the last day, so maybe the fires had burned their last. And then Jesus says, well, we've really enjoyed ourselves. Now I want to tell you, I am the light of the world. As nice as they were, they were the light of Jerusalem. I am the light of the world. And so I think whatever the context was, it's something to do with this festival. And it would have impacted the way that people heard it. I think Jesus is announcing that he's the answer to all of the prayers of all of these people at the festival. Additionally, Jesus is calling people to follow him, just as the Israelites followed the pillar of fire through the wilderness. And just as in the wilderness that pillar of fire saved, or God saved Israel, he guided them, he protected them, and he provided for them. When Jesus says, come, follow me, I'm the light of the world, he's making similar promises. I will save you. I will guide you. I will protect you, and I will provide for you. I believe Jesus makes these same promises for us today. That as the light of the world, if we follow him, he'll save us. He will guide us, protect us, and provide for us. But I also want to think of these three specific implications of Jesus being the light of the world. The first, just looking at a big picture, is that Jesus is the light of the world. Not Jerusalem, not Israel, but of the world. We could go back and look at the prophets and how they had talked of of Israel being a light to the nations and how they had not lived up to that. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, there's something there that says, I am taking over the responsibility of Israel. Because Israel has neglected its duty. While you're celebrating and hoping for the Messiah to come and save you, you're you're wanting to be saved from all of these other people in the world, rather than saving all of these other people in the world. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. So I think that's an important aspect. 
The second is, is similar to that, but it applies to us. It applies to Jesus' followers. It applies to the church. That the church is to function as a light. Matthew chapter 5, we looked at this earlier this year when we did the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Jesus here describes his followers as the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do we light a lamp and put it under a basket. Set it on a stand so that it can give light to the whole house. He concludes that little conversation by saying, um, let others see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. To be a light to the world, for us, for the church, to be a light to the world so that people give glory to God. So that's the second application. And then, coming even more personal, closer to home, I want us to notice the two promises that Jesus made in John 7. You see, Jesus didn't just say, I am the light of the world. Figure out what that means for yourself. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so these are, for any person that follows me, I've got two promises of how you'll be blessed by my light. Notice that Jesus firstly doesn't promise the removal of all darkness. Okay. He doesn't promise that darkness will disappear. Hey, I'm here, I'm the light, there is no more darkness. Instead he says, in the midst of the darkness, I will be your light. You see, the darkness is still out there, but Jesus' light means that we don't walk in it. You might say, but I experience darkness in my life. I experience suffering, I experience struggles, things don't go the way that I want to, always want it to. Even when Jesus is the light, it's within the context of a fallen world. You know, things don't go right. Uh, the world is not perfect. Life is not perfect. But we still have that light with us. We can see what's going on around us. The other part of that is that sometimes, though, it's not just accidental or fate or circumstances that cause us pain. Um, sometimes we make a left turn when Jesus made a right turn. Sometimes we step into the shadows. <laughs> we don't step out of the light, right? We just step into the shadows. Yeah, the light's still there. We can still see what's going on. But when we step into the shadows, we've stepped away from the light. And after a while, it's hard to tell exactly where the shadows stop and the darkness begins. Because right? life isn't just light and darkness. There is this shadow land that we travel through. And uh, there's a, a lot of gray there. And we spend more time in those shadows than perhaps we'd like to admit. And so sometimes we experience darkness, not because Jesus turned his light off or Jesus went too far ahead of us, but because we stepped aside on our journey. 
And then the second promise was, but will have the light of life. That's a, a phrase that, um, it's not intuitive to me what that means. Okay? Light of life. Okay? Uh, I need more information to make, to make sense of that. It goes back to John chapter 1. Uh, I read earlier where there's life, and that life is the light of men. Uh, so, so we see that there. But I think uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 14, describe this idea well for us. Paul here writes this. He says, giving joyful thanks to the Father. And right now, whenever I see joyful, I'm just thinking that dancing musical scene of psalms being sung and lights going on. Uh, Giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we were living in darkness with sins, with guilt, with shame, with struggles. He says we've been rescued, rescued us through forgiveness from that dominion of darkness and brought to new life in the kingdom of light. And I think that's what Jesus is is talking about when he says, you will have the light of life. That, That he's going to take us from darkness to new life in the kingdom of light. That he forgives our sins and gives us that new experience. And then I think our our last observation about light, about Jesus' light, is that it can make us uncomfortable. Generally speaking, we like light. If we just turned all the lights off and said we're going to do the whole service, not only with a mask on our face, we're going to cover our eyes. I'm going to sit here in darkness. I mean, you'd probably get up and leave before I handed out all of those blindfolds, right? Darkness conceals. Darkness prevents us walking around and living life. Um, you know, we're banging into chairs, we're hitting things, we can't find things. You, I don't have to explain the limitations of darkness. In John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, we read there, Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. I think it's real easy for us to go, Oh, Jesus is talking about evil people. Jesus is talking about evil people, but he's not. He's not talking about evil people, people characterized as evil. He says, people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. People who do evil things don't like those evil things being exposed. Don't like light being shined on those evil things. And I think if we're honest, we'll recognize that it describes each of us more than we'd like to admit. Don't we each have attitudes 
behaviors, thoughts, habits that we don't want God's light shined on? Aren't there things in our lives that we know aren't great, the the way we spend our time, the the way we spend our money, uh, the way we value things? Um, They're they're not great, but, but we don't want to talk about them. We're comfortable with them, even though we know they're not great. But we wouldn't want them put up here. So we want to say, on the one hand, we're not evil, but there are things in our lives that we don't want put up on this screen on Sunday morning. We don't want that light shined on them. We're not ready for that. And so if Jesus is the light, he's shining his light on those parts of our life that we don't want to be exposed. And if we're honest... There's some discomfort about Jesus being the light. While at the same time we recognize the joy of salvation that comes with that light. Jesus' light is life. But it challenges us to be honest about ourselves. About parts of our lives that would rather pretend don't exist. So I want to leave you with two thoughts today. Because Jesus is the light of the world, if we follow him, he'll save us, guide us, protect us, and provide for us. I think that's really core to this understanding. And the second point is that when we identify those parts of our lives, and maybe this is our project for the week, to think, what are the things in my life that I don't want put up on the screen on Sunday morning? When we identify those things that we want to keep in the shadows, then we need to consider if that isn't the Holy Spirit prompting us to make changes in those aspects of our life. You see, we can't experience the full benefit of the light of God until we're willing to shine that light fully into our lives. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you, shine on you, and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.